This is Get Ready for Sunday, a weekly podcast reviewing the scripture readings for the Sunday Masses in Roman Catholic churches on January 9th, 2022, the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. I'm not here to preach. I'm here to share some background and context information gathered from the work of genuine scripture scholars and thoughtful commentators. But fair warning, all that is sifted through my own tiny brain. This podcast has been silent for a while due to my own human limitations. I beg your forgiveness if it caused you any consternation. I had to be gone for a while, but I'm back now, and on we go. As always, if you'd like to have your eyes on the scripture readings while I talk about them, simply go to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops website, it's usccb.org. In the top navigation bar, select Prayer and Worship, and from the menu that drops down from there, choose Daily Readings Calendar. The Christmas season is over now. We're in the year's first few weeks of ordinary time, from today onward until we get to Ash Wednesday at the beginning of Lent on March 2nd. This feast, the baptism of the Lord, is an important one. The feast ends the Christmas season and moves us into ordinary time. Normally, the Christmas season is around 20 days long. This year, it has a little bit of a shorter run at 16 days. The feast marks the starting point of Jesus venturing from his home life and confronting the brokenness of the human condition and of the world in which we live. It is a transitional feast in that we have a short period of ordinary time, about seven weeks, before Lent begins. From a practical perspective, it would be difficult for us to go from a celebratory season like Christmas directly into the great introspective penitential season of Lent. That might induce a sort of spiritual whiplash. So the church gives us this short taste of ordinary time to walk with Jesus. In the coming weeks, we'll see him gather his disciples and introduce some of his most radical teachings, radical for the time and still radical in many ways for today. Before we look at this Sunday's readings, I want to acknowledge a theological issue that has confounded biblical scholars for centuries, that is, the 18-year gap. Most scholars agree that Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry. Now, the last we heard about Jesus, and only Luke gives us this scene, Jesus was temporarily lost to his parents. He is found, after a three-day search, teaching in the temple when he was 12 years old. The conundrum is the 18-year time span from this single childhood scene to the beginning of his public ministry. There are no biblical accounts about his life during this period. That is, there are none among the accepted canon of Scripture. There is much speculation about those years, and several ancient stories about Jesus as a young boy do exist, notably in a second-century work commonly known as the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, and in a 6th century volume called the Arabic Infancy Gospel. None of these, nor any other similar works, 
have been considered as trustworthy scripture and adopted into the canon. But we do know a number of things, or can reason them out. We know that Joseph, Jesus' father here on earth, was a carpenter and, in Jewish custom, he would have taught his son his craft. We know that Jesus was literate, which was not always the case in a first-century blue-collar Jewish household. So Jesus must have been taught to read and write at some point during those years. Something that has fascinated many over the centuries is this question. When did Jesus of Nazareth fully understand his own role in human history, his own divinity, and his life mission? As far as I know, the Church has never taken a definitive position on that question. In fact, some years ago, I posed a similar question to a very eminent Jesuit scripture scholar with decades of teaching in pontifical universities. His response was to decline offering any answer at all. So, if the question of Jesus' self-awareness fascinates you, speculate all you want. Just don't expect to find a doctrinal conclusion in the church. I suggest it would be much more profitable to ask yourself this question. Have I come to a full awareness of my own mission in life and what that mission will require of me? All right, enough tangent on to the day's scripture. The first reading for this Mass is from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And you can easily understand why we Christians see a direct link to the gospel passage about Jesus' baptism that is in our gospel today. Keep in mind that this Isaiah prophecy is recorded more than 500 years before Jesus met John at the Jordan River. The passage is from the section of the book that scholars call Deutero-Isaiah, or Second Isaiah, meaning it was written by one or more individuals after Isaiah's death who were of his school or lineage of prophecy. This section is the source of the servant songs, which we Christians take as a direct prediction of Jesus. Today's passage contains the first of these songs. This, then, is a reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one with whom I am pleased, upon whom I have put my spirit, he shall bring forth justice to the nations, not crying out, not shouting, not making his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he shall not break, and a smoldering wick he shall not quench, until he establishes justice on the earth. The coastlands will wait for his teachings. I, the Lord, have called you for the victory of justice. I have grasped you by the hand. I formed you and set you as a covenant of the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out prisoners from confinement and from the dungeon those who live in darkness. The Word of the Lord. A couple of quick notes about the passage. First, notice that even centuries before Jesus would walk the earth, 
God is telling Isaiah how he will lead, not as a military ruler or an authoritarian monarch. Instead, he will lead with peacefulness, without violence. Empowered and full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus accomplishes his work in a manner no one expected. Second, there's a very subtle reference in the passage to salvation for the Gentiles, to the universality of God's mercy and provision. The coastlands will wait for his teaching. The coastlands around the Mediterranean world at the time were inhabited mostly by Gentile nations. Think about Egypt, the Roman Empire, Greece, and even the Holy Land itself. The Philistines occupied the coastal land immediately west of Jerusalem. Tyre and Sidon in the north were pagan territories. And Assyria, with its capital in Antioch, was a Gentile nation immediately to the north. Third, through Isaiah, God is telling the world that his servant, the one with whom he is well pleased, will be a light to all the nations, not just the Jewish people, but be a new covenant for all people. And notice how they will recognize this Messiah. He will open the eyes of the blind, bring out prisoners from confinement and from the dungeon, those who live in darkness. Throughout the liturgical year, we will read about Jesus performing just such miracles of healing, and of course, releasing prisoners and bringing people out of darkness are metaphorical references to the heart of Jesus' mission. Today's responsorial psalm is taken from Psalm 29. It proclaims God's greatness and sovereignty over all creation. The scene depicted in the full text is the heavenly court. The imperative at the beginning is not directed at humans, but rather at heavenly beings, which Hebrews of the time would call sons of God. The opening stanza is not a suggestion, it's an order. Those in this majestic venue are in existence to offer praise at the wonders of God. We hear a description of God whose voice is thunder itself, the voice alone, with no need for other instruments or manifestations of power, is enough to rule over the potentially destructive forces of nature. The call to those present in the heavenly court is for them to acknowledge this omnipotence. Finally, God sits above the calmed floodwaters. This is the only mention in Scripture, other than the flood in the book of Genesis, of floodwaters. So, there God sits, having quelled the destructive elements, and now sovereign over all that is. As usual, I will read the refrain only at the beginning and the end. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Give to the Lord, you sons of God, give to the Lord glory and praise. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Adore the Lord in holy attire. The voice of the Lord is over the waters, the Lord over vast waters. The voice of the Lord is mighty, the voice of the Lord is majestic. The God of glory thunders in his temple. All say, Glory! 
The Lord is enthroned above the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord will bless his people with peace. The second reading comes from the Acts of the Apostles. This is a little unusual. As we've entered into the cycle of readings where the Gospels are generally from Luke, the book of Acts is a natural fit. Luke wrote both the Gospel that bears his name and the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Scholars generally agree that they were done as a single literary project, split up later. We'll get into that in a special episode that will be coming soon that will be a general overview of Luke's work. Normally, we read from Acts during the Easter season as the first reading. In the entire three-year cycle of the lectionary, there are only a very few instances where the second reading comes from this book. This Sunday is one of them. As you will see, the passage fits nicely for this feast of Jesus' baptism. A reading from the Acts of the Apostles. Peter proceeded to speak to those gathered in the house of Cornelius, saying, In truth, I see that God shows no partiality. Rather, in every nation, whoever fears him and acts uprightly is acceptable to him. You know the word that he sent to the Israelites as he proclaimed peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. What has happened over all Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. He went about doing good and healing all those oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. The Word of the Lord. The scene is the house of a newly converted Roman centurion, a professional officer of the army, or perhaps the navy. A centurion typically had command of a group of soldiers called a century. How many soldiers in a Roman century, you ask? What do you think? Why, 80, of course. Don't ask me, I have no idea why. Centurions often held positions of great esteem and privilege in the community at large as well. So, the place is unusual for a gathering of the early church or for other Gentiles who might be open to hearing more about this Jesus and his gospel. Also, that Peter is present in the home of a non-Jew is unusual. His opening statement indicates that he's grown in his openness to Gentiles. God shows no partialities, he says. Jesus is Lord of all. He's preaching a very radical idea. Very radical then and still radical in most parts of the world today. I wonder if he fully understood the long-term ramifications of such an idea of inclusiveness and fellowship that extended beyond ethnic, financial, or military barriers. It is an idle curiosity on my part, because he preached the message nonetheless. It is a new kind of peace. It is radical indeed. 
Peter doesn't shy away from potential trigger points for defenders of Rome. John the Baptist was already known in the area as a threat to so-called Roman peace. Putting Jesus together with John in a ritual of unification brought Jesus into the same category of threat to the Roman establishment. It doesn't seem that Peter is trying to make a political statement, however. He concentrates instead on indicators of the power of Jesus' ministry, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and the universal nature of his message. Our Gospel passage is Luke's account of Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. As you would expect, all three synoptic Gospels have a version of this baptism, and even the Gospel of John mentions the event. So you have the idea of the centrality of this event in the life and ministry of Jesus. And from this, we can more easily understand the importance of baptism in the practice of those who follow Jesus, from the earliest days and the tiny communities to the present moment. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. The people were filled with expectation, and all were asking in their hearts whether John might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I am baptizing you with water, but one mightier than I is coming. I am not worthy to loosen the thongs of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. After all, the people had been baptized, and Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. Heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The Gospel of the Lord. Now, Luke's version of the baptism itself is a single sentence. He only mentioned that Jesus had been baptized. Instead, Luke's focuses on a prominent theme throughout his gospel and the book of the Acts of the Apostles, that is, the prominence of prayer, and here specifically of Jesus in prayer. Only Luke tells us Jesus was praying on the occasion of his baptism. Luke does not tell us what Jesus prayed. At the beginning of his public ministry, however, Jesus prayed, and at the end of his ministry, while hanging on the cross, Luke will show us again Jesus in prayer. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. This prayerfulness is something we'll get into in that sometime soon-to-be-posted episode that will be an overview of Luke as we begin a year in his gospel at Mass. In this scene today, Luke also gives us a first glimpse of the Holy Trinity. We see all three persons of the Godhead at this baptism. The Father, the voice, speaks. The Son, who is revealed through the words of the Father. You are my beloved. And the anointing and empowering of the Son through the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not just the Messiah. 
He is eternal God and Son of the Father. The first two verses of the Gospel passage for Sunday are a repeat of what we read on the third Sunday of Advent. John the Baptist proclaims that he is not the Messiah and that one mightier than he is coming. Luke has a purpose in putting this disclaimer from the Baptist into his Gospel right here. It is a reminder of John's popularity with the crowds, so much so that many thought he could actually be the Christ. John clearly shuts down any such notion. Luke is explicit in having John tell the crowd there is no cause for confusion or competition between himself and Jesus. John's words call up an image of the lowliest position in a Jewish household, that of a servant who is tasked with loosening the master's sandals and washing his feet. John says he couldn't even do that for Jesus. Next, the Baptist's words identify two different baptisms. What he is doing is a ritual, prayerful and introspective, but still just a ritual. What Jesus brings, he says, is transformational, a new life born of the Holy Spirit and fire. John's message is also a prophecy of what Jesus will accomplish at Pentecost, a true baptism of fire. Remember, John is the last of the old cohort of prophets. Jesus opens the gate to the new creation. That's enough for now. Thanks for your patience with my brief absence. Thanks for clicking in today. And may you know the blessings of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at work in your life during each of your days. In fact, try tossing in a little intentional cooperation with that grace and see what happens. <laughs>